0: Welcome to Homegrown History with Limestone County archivist Rebecca Davis and longtime Athens, Alabama native Richard Martin. Each episode, Richard and Rebecca bring to life some of the famous and infamous stories etched in Limestone County's rich history.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Homegrown History, your Limestone County History Podcast. I'm Rebecca Davis, the archivist of the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama, and I'm joined here by my co-host.
2: I'm Richard Martin, the oldest one here.
1: That's right. And once again today, we have a great topic to discuss, and I'm even more honored to say we have two really great guests joining us today. So here in the studio, we have, first of all, Chris Paysinger. Uh, Chris is a Limestone County Elmont boy, and he is a teacher here, history teacher at Athens Renaissance School, and he also is the author of Let the Circle Be Unbroken, which is book he wrote about Athens during the Civil War and that's gonna be our topic today we're gonna talk about the Civil War in Athens and I'm just gonna tell you right now this will probably be a two-parter so y'all just hang in there because the Civil War was a time of a lot of activity right here on Athens soil and a lot of blood was shed and we're gonna talk about all that And then our other guest, we're delighted to have Peggy Towns, our friend who uh, she'll be joining us for a few podcasts here and there because Peggy just knows a little bit of everything about North Alabama history, especially African-American history. She is the author of, okay, what's that extended title, Peggy? The plight of North Alabama's African-Americans during the Civil War. That's right. Peggy is from Decatur, but she's got Limestone County ties too. Her family was a bunch of Allens that all lived down in the Poplar Creek area. Area. So uh, we'll claim her too. Absolutely. And so I'm really delighted to have you both here today. And we're going to just have a conversation about the Civil War in Limestone County. What it was like for the folks who lived here, what led up to the actions here. And also, I know that, Richard, you had ancestors who fought in the Civil War, didn't you?
2: Oh, yes. I had, so like right
1: here in Limestone County? Right here. I
2: had three of them that fought here. Two of boys were from Moore'sville, and one was from here in, in Athens. What so, were their names? Well, uh, John David Chandler was one of them, and Ned Martin was the other one, and my great-grandfather, J.W. Martin. He didn't join the army until Tershkin came here, mm-hmm. and that upset him, so he joined the army. But the other ones were in the Confederate army.
1: Now, you had ancestors who fought here as well, didn't you, from yes. the other side, Peggy? Yes,
0: George Allen. Mm-hmm.
1: And it was so interesting
0: the way I found him. Uh, actually, I was looking at a Southern Claims Commission application where Isaac Allen had filed for a old mouse-colored meal and 400 oh, wow. <laughs> pounds of bacon. And in the claim, he talked about... uh he and George fixing to go into the fellowship. Oh, they were army. fixing to. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so while reading his claim, the, some of the names I was familiar with. So I asked Daddy, you know, I had no idea at that time that there were USCT or United States Colored Troop soldiers here in North Alabama. I had, of course, seen the movie Glory, i had read the book, but North Alabama. Right. <laughs> So, uh, I immediately went to the archives trying to find information, could not find anything, uh, was referred to Montgomery. Montgomery didn't have very much, so they asked me to contact some Civil War authorities in Mobile, mm-hmm. who told me I was sadly mistaken. There were never, ever any POWs. Black POWs sent there. They were impressedly sent to work by their masters. I said, well, I beg to wow. differ. By that time, wow! by that time, I had George Allen's pension records. So, oh, wow. And the rest is
1: history. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And we're going to get into that history. Yes. Um, Chris, you also have some family ties, too. Tell me about that for uh, here in Limestone County with uh, the with the war.
3: I grew up in Elkmont. Most of my relatives were Tennesseans. Oh, uh-huh. Um, tried to actually leave and were conscripted in Mississippi into the Confederate Army. So they were not willing participants. But I grew up in Elkmont. Uh, Of course, the Battle of Sulphur Trestle always kind of loomed large. I was Mm -hmm. a kid that liked history. I don't think my grandfather who farmed appreciated the fact that I was kind of enamored with encyclopedias rather than playing (laughs) on the farm. But uh, he gave me three Civil War bullets that had been found on the Civil War battlefield in Elkmont. Still got them and... They might as well have been magic beans to me. They were so interesting. So, kind of set some things in motion as far as my interests.
1: Right. Well, and I don't have Limestone County soldiers in my family history that I know of. But I will real quick before we get into Limestone County tell y'all that just a few years ago, I found out another family had done some family history that one of my ancestors, his name was Royal Bates, he was down there in Coleman County, and they were trying to conscript him into the Confederate Army. So he took off to the Free State of Winston. Well, a couple of those Confederate enforcers came around, hauled him back to Coleman County. I'll be doggone if three days later he didn't show back up in the Free State of Winston, <laughs> and those guys were never seen again. Yeah. So um, a few years ago, the Sons of the Confederate Veterans did give me a sword to say thank you for my work, for the history, you know, in the history of law Los- I hope they don't take away my sword now that they know that old Royal was uh, maybe on the other side of things. (laughs) Well, let's get started. Before we really even talk about, you know, battles and so on, I do want to talk a little bit about the state of limestone county leading up to the civil war because um we've talked about this in previous episodes if you all want to take a listen i know richard and i've done some episodes about what limestone county was like leading up to the civil war of course it was founded in 1818 and in 1835, you had this new courthouse that was built that was real nice. In 1858, the first trains came through here. And that was a big, big deal that folks around here worked really hard to, to make happen. And that ended up being really crucial in how this area became such a hotbed of activity, as we'll talk about. Was, uh, it really centered around the train. But one thing to realize, too, is the demographics and uh, the politics of limestone county by 1860 slaves actually outnumbered free people in limestone county so you had a situation where less than half the population owned more than half the population and that being said it was really more of a union sympathetic town Mm -hmm. until 1862 whenever the sack of Athens took place. So before we get into that, what have you seen in your research about just kind of what the feel was of Limestone County leading up to secession and the Civil War?
3: Athens and Limestone County have been very successful economically up until that point. Now, a lot of studies that you look at from that era that look at the economics of slavery, perhaps, uh, but the economics of Alabama, Georgia, that the best days were behind some of these places. And so a lot of people had begun to migrate west for better cotton lands. And that's the reason I think the railroads brought through and that -hmm. that Thomas Hobbes and those guys push it so heavily is they saw it as an economic imperative to basically prop up the system of slavery and the power structure that had come to exist in North Alabama.
1: I special ordered that train to come through right right now, just so so you know. (laughs) Absolutely.
3: But as you said, you know... um, Limestone County was 52% slave at that point. And mm-hmm. you think about Athens at that point, if I'm not mistaken, had somewhere in approximately 2,000 residents, mm-hmm. half of whom were slaves. Mm-hmm. And so the immediacy and the the familiarity of slavery and the coming war, I can't imagine the mood and the, the worry that had begun to emerge in 1860 as the election of 1860 loomed.
1: Right. What are your thoughts on it? Well, and
0: and with my ancestors, they were, of course, on the plantation of Robert Alling, who was a very successful farmer Mm -hmm. early on. Mm -hmm. But by the time the war started, there were few slaves on the plantation. As a matter of fact, in Isaac's claim, he mentions that he and George are the only two adults
1: mm -hmm. on the
0: plantation. So... What happened to the other slaves?
1: Mm -hmm. Perhaps
0: they sold them off. Yeah,
1: Yeah. maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah, because you had had some years of recession, at least earlier on in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. that kind of followed this huge boom that brought people to Limestone County. And so, um, yeah, I can see that. I think one thing to mention, too, and Richard, maybe you can speak on this, because I know he was one of your ancestors or relatives. Uh, George Houston. Yes. He was a representative by
2: then, right? Yes, he was a representative of Limestone County in Congress. He was the chairman of the uh, where they have all the money. Mm -hmm. Treasury, yeah. Treasury. But he didn't want this war. He tried to stop it. And before the election of Lincoln, his roommate later on became vice president of the United States under Lincoln. Mm -hmm. I forgot his name. He's from Maine. But anyway, George S. Houston knew what was going on all the time in Washington. And he knew how strong the military was because he was chairman of the military committee too. And so he didn't want to go to war. But he was trying to stop it.
1: Mm-hmm. At least at the outset, because one thing about Houston, he was a he was a very he later became governor. Of course, right. he was from right here in Athens. And, um, very much a populist politician, wasn't he? He kept his finger on the pulse of what people were wanting at the time. Well, and, and on January 11th, 1861, when Alabama seceded, Limestone County really was still very overwhelmingly against Mm -hmm. secession. And the Democrat, the, uh, Democrat newspaper at the time was called the Democrat. I said, today has been a glorious day for the town of Athens, in spite of the threats of that arch traitor, Yancey, to compel us, the, the citizens of Limestone County, to submit to treason and disunion. We have this day run up the glorious flag of our union on the courthouse, and the working men of Athens have just been out and fired 100 guns in honor of the union and the flag. Long may it wave. Um, And then two weeks later, there in Athens, the crowd burned an effigy of secessionist William Yancey. But, you know, that kind of made a splash, even in the national news, that this town in the south was doing this. And they kept the Union flag flying over the courthouse for about a month. And then Athens Mayor William Tanner, he had it taken down in what he called a peace measure. And by February 15th, the newspaper reported that the crowd had had a sober second thought and taken down the U.S. flag. So, you know, originally, this was very much pro-union. North Alabama was more pro-union than South Alabama. Is that kind of what you all have found in your research?
3: And a lot of historians will say, for example, Athens voted for Stephen Douglas pretty Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly in that election, who was the Northern Democrat. And of course... It's easy to look at that and think that they were just overtly unionist. A lot of historians will say that those places that voted for Stephen Douglas, including the Black Belt of Alabama, which had 80-90% slave populations at the time, did so because of economic imperatives. Mm -hmm. They believed that if anybody besides Douglas was elected, that it was pretty much going to upset the union, it would be torn asunder, and their economic fortunes would be greatly impacted. So this kind of even steps out of politics of secession or even union, and I think a lot of it's couched in the politics of their personal economy and what was going to happen to them.
1: Right, right.
0: Well, absolutely, because the economy, you know, and you hear a lot of people today even say, well, the war was not all about slavery. It was about the economy,
1: Duh! An economy that was built upon slavery, built <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's true here in Limestone County. I mean, I can tell you the two things most importantly that Limestone County was built on: slavery and moonshine. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what fueled the economy here. You can think that Limestone County was dr- Limestone County's never been dry. How
2: did, how did you know about moonshine?
1: <laughs> I know nothing. Don't tell my dad. <laughs> <name. laughs> that's another story for another that's a, day. Uh, Richard needs me on that podcast. <laughs> Um, So, of course, you know, the first year or so of the war bumps along, and you had people signing up to fight for the Confederates here, and some Union as well, I'm sure, but it really wasn't until May of 1862 that it all came to a head here. Do one of y'all want to kind of pick up with the story of Turchin and the Sack of Athens?
3: Basically, after the fall of uh, Fort Donaldson, February 1862, the Battle of Shiloh, April 1862, the Tennessee Valley became untenable for the Confederates to keep, pretty much because gunboats can make their way up and down the mm-hmm. Tennessee River. Basically, the Confederates had to abandon all of Middle Tennessee and North Alabama. Of course, Turchin, the story I'm sure has been told a million times. His name was Ivan Turchin. John Uh Turchin. Ivan
1: Vasilievich Turchin. (laughs) I'm glad you (laughs) did. Turchininov What's his Russian name. The the
3: middle name there.
1: I've got it right in front of me. But it was Americanized to John Basil Turchin.
3: (laughs) Yeah. He, um, of course, they abandoned uh, North Alabama. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Union Army comes in in May of 1862. The story has been told a million times about John Basil Turchin supposedly turning a blind eye to the looting. Now, I will say, I think it's easy to look at that as an isolated incident. Uh, The Union Army, in my opinion, and I think a lot of historians will probably agree with this, were looking at what's called a hard war policy. In other words, they believed that if you made war on the civilians, that they propped up the the war effort. Mm -hmm. And if you made war on them, made it miserable enough, that the war would be ended faster. And so you really do see a transition in Union Mm -hmm. War policy that began in Athens and Limestone County. Uh, right. Historian Mark Grimsley has a great book about it. It's called The Hard Hand of War.
1: The Hard Hand of War. I'll have to look that one up. It's,
3: it's a great little book, uh, but he points specifically to Athens and basically this transition to a hard war policy.
1: Right. And and that's why I think sometimes people are still sort of fighting the war here, yeah. or at least studying it, because Athens was a turning point, as we'll discuss. And from what I understand, um, the, even the day before Turchin came, that some Limestone County residents had burned out a train trestle and crashed a Union train. And so, uh, Ormsby Mitchell, the general over mm-hmm. in Huntsville, told Turchin and troops to go over to Athens and don't leave a grease spot. Don't leave a post standing. So, I mean, you know, they had their orders. And, uh, but yeah, what, what happened next?
3: Well, uh, they ran them up, destroyed the downtown. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty ugly event. Uh, mm-hmm. Broke into buildings, raped a slave girl. Um, I mean, it was a pretty genuinely horrific looting of the downtown.
1: Right. Um, there was. There's a book that it's the transcription of the trial. that. Yeah. The, well, it's not a trial. What do you call it? Uh, Court Marshal. Thank Court-martial. you yeah. of Churchin that kind of tells some of even the details of things like cutting bacon on the piano and laying up in the bed with the muddy boots. Just things like yeah. that that were maybe it wasn't just a all out slaughter type yeah. thing, but it, a lot of it was just um, mm, kind of taking folks down a notch. I guess is well, a way to look at. it. Absolutely,
3: I think what it is is it was pretty much showing that the traditional power structure built on. Rich white men who owned slaves had been wholly upended, and I think it was an overt effort to show that. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially, you know, the downtown is one thing, which are businesses, but residence is a total different situation. And I personally think that that's why the looting happened the way it did. It was overtly to show that. Hey, you're no longer in control.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: One thing that's interesting to note um, about that time period, too, is that that began a couple years of Union occupation. And at the Limestone County Archives, we actually do have records from before the Civil War and after. But there are definite gaps in the record. Like the will book from the 1860s during the war is just missing. It's gone. And there are court records where you'll have a court case that was recorded in 1861 and then you skip down two lines and the next court case is 1865. Mm. And so business as usual just was not conducted while the town and the county really were under military occupation. So it's interesting Mm. to see that in not so much the record as the gap in the record. So tell us about the court-martial.
3: Well, the the court-martial takes place. uh, It's convened. Uh, It's kind of interesting to me. One of the members of the court-martial was a John Beatty, who was in the 3rd Ohio. And if you read any of his correspondence, he had just burned the town of Paint Rock Valley. But now he's here... As a judge on this Mm court-martial, you know, sitting in judgment of Turchin for what his troops have done. So I think it's just an overt upending of the traditional power structure. And, of course, Lincoln promotes Turchin, Mm -hmm. which promoted him above. Which he
1: actually was found guilty first, though, Mm -hmm. of conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman and disobedience of orders, which I think is kind of interesting given what Mitchell Mm -hmm. had said, you know. But now, apparently his wife, Nadine, was kind of buddy-buddies with the Lincolns, wasn't she? Because from what I understand, she actually wrote a letter saying, you know, you need to promote him to Brigadier General. And Lincoln did, which suddenly put him of higher rank than anyone who had convicted him. So rather than getting punished for what happened to Athens, instead he was rewarded.
3: And a lot of people believe that that's what the War Department and Lincoln ultimately could not let Ivan Turchin be found guilty and be punished because that undermines that hard war policy that they were beginning to pursue.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I do think it's interesting just as a postscript about Turchin is that um, he actually resigned his commission in 1864 and in 1901, he died in the Southern Illinois hospital for the insane. (laughs) So I always think that's interesting, you know, final to his story. Mm -hmm. Well, of course this really galvanized people here in Athens. You had a lot of the white people here, white men, join the Confederate Army. But then, Peggy, tell us a little bit about what the situation was with enslaved people who were here during this time and their, and the choices they made. Well, uh, actually, they were still slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Militia Act
0: was the first official authorization that actually used blacks during mm-hmm. the Civil War. Uh, prior to this time, and the Militia Act of 1792 actually barred blacks from serving in the military. And yes, they did fight in the American Revolution, they fought in the War of 1812, but Congress passed legislation for them to do so. Mm-hmm. And so the Militia Act and then the Second Confiscation Act actually freed the slaves who fought with the Union Army.
1: So when did when was that passed?
0: The Militia Act was passed in what
1: eighteen
0: sixty
3: two three. So it was 18.
0: after this sack of Athens. Mm-hmm. So after the Emancipation mm-hmm. Proclamation, Act- absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember that the Emancipation Proclamation was actually signed in September. Mm of 1863. And then in uh, January 1, 1864 is when it became effective for all the states who were in rebellion. And so many people think, okay, the Emancipation Proclamation freed everybody,
3: but it was for only the states who were in rebellion. Interesting. And it's even more interesting, I think, when you think about if you're a slave in Athens and you hear about the Emancipation Proclamation in September 62, well, what does that really mean for you? Right. Luckily here you would have had a Union Army as far as a a sense of protection, but there's a lot of slaves across the South in these hinterlands who went about business just as it mm-hmm. had been going on for
1: exactly. hundreds of years. Well, except for many of them were being pressed into service for both yeah. sides, weren't they? For both sides, they were pressed into service.
0: <laughs> and you have to remember, also, Tennessee had gone back to the Union. Mm-hmm. So then you had a lot of uh, slaves migrating to Tennessee, and they were also in the uh, the camps.
3: Yeah, contraband camps. The
0: contraband uh, camps. Yep. And actually, I, I've been trying to figure out where was this. There was one near Hobbes. Uh, is it Hobbes Island? Oh, uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Well, and while we're discussing this, do you mind just taking a moment to address the mythology of the Confederate black soldier? <laughs> okay. You don't have to to, if you don't want to, but I know that's something that has been, in more recent years, has been sort of
0: um, lauded. Okay, you had just mentioned that blacks were also conscript, Mm -hmm. or, well, that's not the word, they were pressed Mm -hmm. to be in the Confederate armies. Many of the blacks went with their... Owners, Many right. of the black enslaved people went with their owners as body servants and that kind of thing. Uh, I think it was Patrick who uh, was a Confederate general. and he, Patrick Claver. Yes. And, he, and so one of the things that he said, we need to get the blacks and we need to let them fight with us. And then we need to free them mm-hmm. for doing that. If you recall, Frederick Douglass also said the first person who enlists blacks to serve in the military, that will be the ones who win the war. Yeah. And he was very accurate. Yeah. But uh, can you imagine you're fighting for slavery in all actuality, and you're going to give this black person a gun to fight?
3: And I've always thought that for the Confederacy to have enlisted black soldiers, mm-hmm. slaves, it completely upends their argument as to why slavery was needed. To say that slaves were not capable, were not smart enough, were not, uh, had the ability to live on their own, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it completely upends the argument of why slavery was needed that had been mm-hmm. perpetrated for a mm-hmm. hundred years previous.
0: And now, toward the end of the war, after the southern states saw that they were losing, actually, mm-hmm. then they, there were blacks. Mm-hmm. Who indeed served? I found a, a record in a newspaper where this uh, black guy had tried to get a pension, mm-hmm. and for years and a Confederate uh, pension. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, his uh, owners, his former owners' daughter. Signed an affidavit saying that, yes, he went and he actually fought. That's interesting. And and you know the story of my great-grandfather because... Well, tell us. uh, He was a former slave from Moorickham, Tennessee. And uh, we knew that he fought in the Civil War. He actually got a portion of his foot shot off and wow. um, wore his boot backwards, so me, while wait, I was... Wait, wait, he wore his boot backwards? Yes, because he didn't have any toes. Wow. <laughs> but actually, I, I tried to locate his pension record or service record, Right. and I was told that there was none. They could not find any at the National Archives, so I was visiting an older person one day, and, and he said, well, you know, General Joe Whelan tried several times to... Help Uncle Allen get his pension? I said, "Really?" He said, "Yes." He really? said, "You know, he got his foot shot off at the Battle of Hood's Raid in Nashville, Tennessee." And this part floored me: fighting for the rebels. I said, "Really? Hey, excuse me." <laughs> <laughs> so then, you know, you come up with the question of why? Yeah. And the only thing that I could come up with is freedom. And, and many people, you know, they talk about this and that, but you're going to do what you can to be free. Right. And, of, of course, uh, Patrick Claiborne, again, that's one of the things that he was a stickler on. Let them fight and give them and
1: their families freedom. Right, right. Well, and I want to get into some of the stories, and this may be in the second part, just some of the human stories of the people who fought and and not just men who were soldiers, but also the women who had to make things happen. I know we want to talk about Emily Frazier. This may be the second part. Get to of this conversation. Get into some human stories. But Rebecca, this. you know, with the Emancipation
0: Proclamation, a lot of people don't know that the Bureau of Colored Troops was established in that legislation. Mm-hmm. It was General Order One Forty Three on May twenty uh, second of eighteen sixty three. And so uh, many people do not realize the call for volunteers went out at that time. That's
1: right. Well, and during the sack of Athens of 1862, the federal troops encamped over at Naphonia Fairgrounds, which is where Athens Elementary School is today, where their playground was and all. And um, so that was kind of this temporary encampment. But then what you had were um, former slaves especially over at Fort Henderson. So Fort Henderson was then built on the southwest side of town. And, you know, it was right in the backyard of Coleman Hill. And Coleman, Daniel Coleman, he was a very prominent lawyer. He owned a lot of slaves too. And I think what you probably had was these, I just think that that's just about hallowed ground over there, you know, because you had slaves who picked cotton and worked that land, worked that earth, and then picked up shovels and dug into the earth to build up this five-pointed star of a fort with a trench all around it and to guard that fort where the um, 106th and the 110th and some of the 111th U.S. colored troops were then stationed. And then we'll get into the um, battles of 1864 where then they picked up guns and fought for their freedom and then of course later on after the war that same soil was where their grandchildren and great-grandchildren studied and learned and played football and sweated into the sides of those trenches at Trinity School. It's just all in this one spot and you've got so much of that here in the county and I think it's interesting. We, We were talking before we started recording about how over there at Trinity for years uh, I know a former teacher told me every time it rained, you could just scoop up bullets that were there. And, Chris, tell me about what you were saying about the guns and the bullets, that how you can tell if it was from a U.S. colored troop.
3: Yeah, uh, this area was garrisoned heavily by United States colored troops, many of whom ran away from plantations mm-hmm. and sought their freedom through the Union Army at that point. You know, I always told students, I still tell students, with that Militia Act that Ms. Towns mentioned, that... 150,000 plus, I think that's a conservative number, for colored troops served. Now, you do that as a comparison to Robert E. Lee's army that at any given time, at its largest, was forty to 60,000. Oh, wow. So if you do that as a comparison, the, the right. amount of manpower that colored troops provided to the Union Army is indispensable to their success. Right. And personally, I don't think the Union Army was would have been as successful as... Nearly as quickly. they. I think the war drags on unless those colored troops aren't used. Mm-hmm.
1: Tell us a little bit about the equipment they were given to use up Yeah,
3: they were, uh, of course, they garrison We're sitting in the public library right now. There's a trestle right behind us that Richard says that he remembers.
2: Yeah. yeah, what do you remember about that from growing up, Richard? Well, where this library is, this was trenches. Not trenches, but mounds of work. And they were guarding the railroad with the gun places looking out that way.
1: So y'all yeah.
2: used to play in there? We used to play BB gun with our BB <laughs> gun. <laughs> Shoot <Sheep> them Yankees. <laughs> but anyway, we had fun here. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Did you know at the time that that's what it was?
2: We were told that that's probably what it was. Yes. Yeah. And guarding the trussles. We would play on the trussle and all that thing. Mm-hmm. There's a wooden trussle. It's a lot of fun. Oh, um, Yeah. The, the trestle
3: system in North Alabama, for one thing, it was the Decatur to Nashville Railroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, extremely, extremely important as far as the Union Army's ability to move goods back and forth from Atlanta mm-hmm. to Nashville, all over the south. I mean, this route was super important. Uh, but they had to garrison all of those trestles, and mm-hmm. they had to protect them because all it took, was burning one sure. significant trestle and it shuts down the railroad yeah. and indefinitely. Because you perhaps. had a
1: huge pipeline of soldiers and supplies coming from... Nashville, and then on out to Chattanooga and Atlanta, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and then vice versa. Injured soldiers and so on going back north. To- and their
0: their mission was actually to protect Sherman's and That was their primary goal. Mm-hmm. So they were garrisoned. And you have to keep in mind that the river was very important as
3: well. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
3: For years, I metal detected. And that's still a hobby. I just don't have as much time to do it anymore. But all those places that I metal detected, when you found sixty nine caliber bullets, mm-hmm. you knew that colored soldiers had garrisoned that place because, for the most mm-hmm. part, those were outdated guns. They were Model 1842, 1816 mm-hmm. Springfields, mm-hmm. which were outdated by the time of the Civil War. Uh, but they were giving those to the, the colored troops because, of, obviously, they were outdated. But they were just garrisoning these wayward trestles out in the middle of nowhere, right.
1: really. Right, and building, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like I should make a note here. Um, the soldiers were referred to as colored troops, U.S. Yeah. colored troops. So although that's not a word that is kosher these days that's what they refer to. so when we refer black african-american colored interchangeably i just feel like we kind of need to address that yeah um so what you had and and also not only here in athens where fort henderson was established and by the way it was not known as fort henderson until the 1890s it was just the athens fort and the only reason it was named fort henderson is because perry henderson who was the local revenue commissioner i believe he surveyed the fort, Absolutely. and so they named it Fort Henderson, and in fact, at the Limestone County Archives, we do have the drawing of the fort outline as he did it, and Richard, tell us a little bit about how that has been used in recent years to help uncover where the walls of the fort once were. Yeah,
2: it, it has, had. and plus, they found where the original front door was, the gate to the fort, they found where the whale was, and we hope to get a grant to dig up the whale and see what's in the whale.
1: That would be amazing. That
2: would be amazing. but. Anyway, we're going to build an outline of that fort eventually, maybe in a year and a half from now.
1: Right. And when you say, well, you're referring to the Athens Limestone Community and, Association. Uh, yes,
2: the like Athens Limestone Community Association, which I'm a part of and been thoroughly enjoy doing.
1: Right, absolutely. And that's who owns the property now at the Trinity Fort Henderson Complex. And the thing is, you can actually still go and see one point of that fort with the trench around it. Yes. It's there off of Browns Ferry Street on the southwest side of Athens. They're they,
2: markers. They're historical yes. markers all over the place, put up by the American Battlefield Association, Mr. Paul Bryant Jr.
1: That's right. Yeah. And Peggy and I actually helped, and Charlotte Fulton and some others actually helped write those. Absolutely. And so you can go and read some of the history of what happened there. Beautiful, beautiful. But the fort now, most of it you can't see because whenever the county built the new the new building in 1959 they tore down the 1914 trinity building and pushed it all of that material into the moat, moat. because it was a it was a mosquito problem right. but it did make it easier for people using devices to what what do you call it? We're sonar to, sonar to yeah, radar. that's it. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> when I can't come up with my words, I'm so sure glad somebody else can. Well, but, we
2: like, did that. We, that's the first thing. When once we got the property, we got that penetrating radar and it went all over it and right. we marked places to see.
1: Right, did right. You? So, um, so, yeah, so it's still there, and now there's work to build a park, which we'll talk about that more here in a little bit. But I do, before we take a break, I wanted to – go ahead, Peggy. I was just going to say
0: I'm glad you mentioned the whale, Richard, because uh, that was one of the things when Nathan Bedford-Forest came in and when Wallace Campbell, Colonel Campbell, surrendered, they had actually – they had a 10-day supply of food And the whale was inside the fort, so that's there was no reason Mm -hmm. at all for him to surrender, Mm -hmm.
1: other Mm -hmm. than he was tricked. Exactly. And I want to get into that. When I tell you what, let's talk a a little bit about how Sulphur Creek Trestle was built up, and then we'll take a little break and come in and talk about the battles of Athens and of Sulphur Creek Trestle and some of these human stories that I want to get into because that's. Just me personally, battle strategy is fine. It's whatever. But I like hearing about the actual humans and what they were doing during this time. Of course, and I mean, there were skirmishes, I'm sure, all over the county. But the two hotbeds that were really built up was the Fort Henderson, which was the home base for folks stationed here in Athens, protecting the railroad down here. And because, like I said, it all went back to the railroad, and it's the railroad that still runs through Athens now. If you've ever been stopped by the train and run you late to work in school, you can, you know, blame Luke Pryor and Thomas Hobbs for building it in nineteen fifteen. Well, it
2: stops up at North Athens. Uh, yeah, it went to the new way in 1915.
1: That's right, and so. The former Sulphur Creek Trestle, it's on what is now the Richard Martin Rails to Trails, right. named by right. your Name friend of mine, because right. he made it happen. But it goes right over what was Sulphur Creek Trestle. And it's just, it's not a big creek, but it was one of the longest and tallest spans on the whole line so it was very vulnerable and um mostly the 111th u.s colored troops with some white soldiers northern soldiers and officers Mm -hmm. were the ones who built up and there are records that show that it was burnt out in 1863 and i'll be doggone if by late winter early spring 1864 they had not already built it all back up again, which is when you think about how long it takes just to get Highway 31 paved. Around about. <laughs> The list don't even go around about That's that. That's a whole number of <laughs> It is. It is. We're going to do a whole podcast on the history of road work in yeah. Athens and Limestone County. But, you know, they were cutting down trees and using that to build up these trestles and then building a fort there to guard it. Yeah. And one of our prized possessions at the Limestone County Archives is an actual 1864 picture of Sulphur Creek Trestle. While they were finishing up building it, rebuilding it in between burnouts, it's a little bitty, you know, carte de visite. But we blew it up four feet wide, and it's such good quality. You can actually still see all the detail, including men up top. On top of that trestle working, and the general who wrote the field report, you know, back about what all was going on there, he said that he could not speak highly enough of the men that were pressed into service to build that trestle, that they just worked really hard and did really good work.
3: I believe that trestle, if I'm not mistaken, is 270 feet long, and it was almost 100 feet tall. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's filled in with dirt now, but... It was a significant structure, one of the largest trestles on the Decatur to Nashville Railroad.
1: That's right. And and actually, you can walk across it now. Of course, like I said, it's not a trestle. You're not going to be like in Stand By Me racing a train. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that Richard and I did work on together was to put some historic interpretive panels at downtown Elkmont and then right there at the trestle that have that picture that I'm telling you about. And also just tell a little bit about the story of you know the people who fought and died there.
2: I want to interrupt. Yes, please. <laughs> that picture—if it hadn't been for the archives, we wouldn't have gotten it. Because we found the picture, and we had to go buy it, and it cost a thousand dollars just to get that picture. And the
1: friends of the archives. And the friends have of archives that. Yep. did that.
2: So that's some of the great work that's going on mm-hmm. around in our town. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm going to interrupt
3: Richard. <laughs> <laughs> and. Give him a lot of credit because, in my opinion, there is no more beautiful place in Limestone County than to stand on top of that trestle and look west in the afternoon. And that little creek meandering through that beautiful valley, it looks like spilled mercury. Mm -hmm. It is so phenomenal. There is no prettier place in Limestone County, and so kudos to Richard and all those folks that worked for yeah, years. Right. To make would. the trail happen. To make and, that
1: trail and happen. And if you, any time of year, I would highly recommend anyone take a walk on the Richard Barton Rails to Trails. Yeah. I actually just went running up there on Saturday, and I banged on Richard's door and demanded <laughs> some water, <laughs> and sat out on the front porch and chatted for a little while. Yes, and and a, I will even interject, <laughs> <laughs> because I love the creek.
0: Yeah. yeah. That was just phenomenal to me because I'd never been there, Mm -hmm. and to to see the water just trickle down, Mm -hmm. it really touched my You feel like you can feel the spirit speaking to you, don't you? And we visited the residence, Mm -hmm. and to just be up there and look down, and to see some of the uh, holes.
1: Oh yeah, the uh, rifle pits are still there. The rifle pits, yes.
0: It was just phenomenal.
1: It is, it is. Go ahead.
3: One last thing about the trestle. Um, A lot of people consider that to be the setting for Ambrose Bierce's super important short story, maybe every kid's favorite short story, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge Mm -hmm. set during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And there's an Ambrose Beers project that has studied this. He was a soldier from Indiana. He served time in North Alabama, and they believe that either Swan Creek Trestle on the other side of Tanner or the Trestle at Sulphur Trestle to be the setting for that. That's cool. And it's super cool. I'm
1: telling you, I've said this before in this podcast, and I'll say it again. Everything in the entire world, in all of history, somehow connects to Limestone County. <laughs> it's the craziest thing I've ever seen but it's true yeah so I wouldn't doubt it a bit well on that happy note are we done with our backslapping slapping fest yet Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay well let's take a little break and then we'll come back for our next episode y'all stay tuned follow along so y'all can find part two where we talk some more about civil war in limestone county so thanks a lot signing off for homegrown history I'm Rebecca
2: and I'm Richard Martin come
1: see us next time come hear us next time that's right You've been listening to
0: Homegrown History, presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library and the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. For more information and to submit questions or suggestions, please visit limestonearchives.com. And to hear other recordings from our Library Voices series, check out our website at alcpl.org. You can also listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.